Hello and welcome to the Midgley's Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Midgley's and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. War broke out between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan last week, and this latest fighting was worse than what we saw in late April 2021. At least 100 people were killed in clashes between September 14th and 17th. There have been problems between communities along the common border for some time, but starting in early 2014, military forces from both countries became increasingly involved in disputes that previously were fistfights and rock throwing that resulted in several people receiving medical attention for bruises, uh, and that turned into casualties from gunshot and artillery wounds and widespread destruction of buildings and other property. While the governments of the two countries trade accusations over who started the shooting and border guards of the two countries continue to regularly exchange fire, stuck in the middle are people of the area, Kyrgyz and Tajik villagers who are just trying to make a living. How has life changed for the people living along the Tajik-Kyrgyz border? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Madeline Reeves, a professor of social anthropology at Oxford University and author of the book Border Works, Facial Lives of the State in Rural Central Asia, which is based upon observations she made when she lived in the area along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border where so much of the fighting has taken place. Madeline, thank you very much for joining me. I know this is an area that's near and dear to both of us. I've been first was down there in 1992. Uh, when the biggest concern um, at the time was was what are we going to do with being people of independent countries? Uh, no one really understood what independence really meant. And, then, of course, there were concerns because the Tajik Civil War had just started. Uh, and those those were really the main concerns of life. But you you have, you actually stayed and lived with these people for a long time. And I remember uh, at, at a conference at Cambridge uh, some years back, you gave a, a – for example, uh, a speech, and you were talking about the bus, the bus routes. Now, this is an area that was, uh, you know, the border was drawn during Soviet times. It weaves in and out. If you're on the lone road that existed, you would pass in and out of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan several times as you made your way along this road. And there are parts where the road is actually the border, where one side of the road is Tajikistan and the other side of the border is Kyrgyzstan. But you made the point that the that in prior to the to the hostilities breaking out some 10 years ago, the, the communities were connected by a number of things. And you used the bus as one example of, of how people had to get along, uh, or at least they interacted with each other because they had to ride the bus together to get to places. Can you give us an, uh, you know, a picture of what life was like along the border when you were living there? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Bruce, for the uh, for the invitation and the introduction. Um, so I first went to the, <clears throat> the, the the area that we might refer to as the Isfara Valley. Um, that is to say, the kind of group of Kyrgyzstani and Tajikistani villages that lie along the Isfara River, and that connects sort of Varukh at one end and and the the town of Isfara at the other end. Um, I first went there in in 2004. At the time, I was working at Batken University um, and conducting fieldwork for my PhD. And I I, I I used to go there quite often to do interviews, to do fieldwork in villages sort of, well, on, on, on either side of the of the border there. And I remember the first time taking this bus, which I took many times, that started in Batken and that ended in the village of Aksai. Um, and at that time, it was the same bus, I think, that had been in use since the 1970s. It was one of these old yellow buses they called Bulochki. Um, and um, that bus route, you know, it was, I think, very indicative of the way that social relations 
kind of were organized in in this region at that time in that like you say it's sort of tacked in and out of the Kyrgyzstan border, um, the Kyrgyzstan-Tajikistan border multiple times, right, between starting in Bakken and ending in Aksai. It went through Charkuh, it went through Sur, it went um, through Samarkandik um, in Kyrgyzstan. So it went through all these places that now are quite kind of, they, they're quite sort of, let's say, social life is quite separate, quite disconnected from, from one another on, on either side of those borders. And like you say, I think the bus it forced at a very basic level a certain form of very, very basic social interaction, right? Standing at a bus stop, but also um, I remember very clearly the social sort of interaction that was on the bus. And, and so it was Kyrgyz and Tajiks both taking this bus because it stopped on both sides of the border through all these little villages. And it took about two and a half, three hours to go from Bakken to Aksai, right? There was always this kind of very, yeah, elaborate we might say sort of performance of cordiality at a very, very basic level, right? In terms of exchanging greetings, in terms of offering up one seat to somebody who was older than you, in terms of, you know, helping somebody to move their bags because everyone was coming on with with shopping or whatever. Then when they were coming from market town and going back to their villages, um, helping people with little kids, you know, it was it was a sort of little microcosm of in a way, just the simple basic need to get along <laughs> in a confined space, right? And, you know, there were, there were sort of ways in which that was marked through through language. Very often people would communicate with one another in Uzbek, that being the sort of de facto common language between Kyrgyz speakers and Tajik speakers here. And certainly between, say, older men who greeted each other, there was this kind of very yeah, elaborate way of greeting one another, of asking whether one was healthy, you know, um, and so on and so forth. And I think w- the reason that I gave that example and that that paper already, I think, is from, from more than 10 years ago, is that I think public transport is one of those spaces that we tend not to pay much attention to, right? It's sort of banal, it's taken for granted and so forth, until it doesn't exist, until it fails. And one of the consequences of the fact that this region has... Um, not just being more sort of securitized, right? So that crossing borders now you can only cross at certain sort of formal crossing points and you need documents and so on and so forth. But the fact that a lot of the infrastructure that has been built over the last decade has been built in a sense to allow ways of bypassing the neighboring state has had the sort of de facto effect of minimizing those habitual spaces of social contact. Um, I'll just give one other small example because it ties in with this. But there was this expression that one would often hear, which was, you know, this is a place where, yeah, there have been there are all of these kind of reasons for tension. Right. It, it, I don't want to romanticize that this is somehow a place where, you know, that there's there's there hasn't historically been a lot of tension, a lot of grievance and 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 and. You know, in, also in Soviet times, some significant outbursts of of um, conflict. But there was this kind of dominant discourse that, well, you know, we all have to we all we all use the same bazaar. Right. That was the expression. Bazaar was beer. Um, and, you know, that was true in a very in a very material sense that, that people would use the same markets. They would go to Charku for certain things. They would go to Varukh for certain things. They would go to Samarkandik for certain things. They might go to Isfara for certain larger purchases. But basically, there was a recognition that markets were a certain kind of shared space and that, you know, you might not feel huge 
um, I don't know, sort of uh, warmth, or you might not know the people living in the other village particularly closely, but you would at least trade, right? That there was this space of social interaction. And again, that has been sort of dramatically, those spaces of social interaction have been really, um, really reduced in the last few years. And I think, you know, I don't want to link. In fact, I'm very kind of wary of, of suggesting any kind of immediate direct causal link between those transformations and what's been happening in the last couple of days. Right. Which I think is much more bound up with sort of domestic politics and domestic political crisis in Tajikistan and and, you know, militarization and so forth. But I think if we're talking about shifting relations at a daily level, the changing kind of nature of those spaces, I think, is really is really important. And the fact that kind of life is just sort of lived on increasingly mono ethnic and, and nationally defined lines. No, great. Thank you. You know, and that's you have an interesting comment there about the use of Uzbek, because, you know, in 1999, when I was down in Badkan, and I wanted to I wanted to see how people were uh, living along the border um, because the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan was up in the mountains, and everyone knew that. So it was for the first time, Batken was getting a lot of attention from from the Kyrgyz government, certainly, and even the Tajik government was paying a little more attention to what was happening way up there north in, in Baruch and those places. But I wanted to see how the presence of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan had affected people living in this area, uh, you know, right along the border. And I went, I, I was able to drive all the way to Baruch, and I, I walked up to the to the entrance to the place and started talking to some of the Tajiks about it. And, and the Kyrgyz in those days, they still got along very well. Um, and the Kyrgyz saw me talk, somebody like me talking to the Tajiks. And, and so people that were in the area just kind of came and, and sat there and talked to me too. And I asked them a bunch of questions about how has this changed your life? Uh, you know, do you, do you feel threatened? Things like that. And it was very curious to me that the, um, both the Tajiks and Kyrgyz said, well, the, those are Uzbeks, right? They kind of just, that we're you know we're we're Kyrgyz and Tajiks and the militants are Uzbeks so they're different than us yeah yeah so you know and there was this understanding between them that that they were somehow tacitly allied in in you know this defense uh, or at least a, you know certainly in the, in the posturing against the militants because they weren't Uzbeks they were Kyrgyz and Tajiks who had lived in this area you know I want I want to get a little more about about the lifestyle of people when I think of that area and the times I went through certainly in the first 20 years that I was going through there, the thing that I always remember is apricots, right? Which is kind of strange, but, but that's all, they had great apricots there too. So I want to, I want to get a sense of what, what people did to make a living. I remember this area as, as having a lot of sheep and like I said, a lot of apricots. It's a farming community an agriculturally based community for the most part, right? Not the connections to the outside world have grown in recent years, but really, you know, 20, 20 years, even 15 years ago, they, they weren't very well connected even to their own countries, really. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. what, your observation? Yeah. So, I mean, there's several things in there. First, in terms of like the kind of, yeah, the physical geographical connections. I mean, I remember, again, when I first went to Bat Ken, you know, there, there wasn't even a direct kind of road connection to get to to Bishkek at that stage, right? And, and historically, again, in, in Soviet times, if you wanted to get from Bat Ken to Frunze, as was, you would have gone through the Fagana Valley, you'd have gone through Uzbekistan and then through Kazakhstan and kind of entered in that way. So, yeah, so so I, I think that's that's certainly um, an important point. And to, an, to a certain extent, I think that sense, that perception in Bishkek 
that that Batken is somehow you know far away and remote and so on really I think still persists even though you know those connections have have, have changed and, and until I think the, the flights from Batken to Bishkek for instance resumed I would say like 2003 2004 you know there was a there was a there was a period in the after the Soviet Union collapsed when there weren't any flights from Batken town right so, so yeah, so, so certainly in terms of those connections. And then your other point about the kind of, you know, the, the, the sense here that, oh, well, we're Kyrgyz and Tajiks and we don't have any, you know, <laughs> we get along just fine, not like those Uzbeks. You know, I think that one, one of the things in the Fagana Valley, right, is that I think you can find those forms of discourse about sort of similarities and alliances and kind of connections, just as you can also find discourses that, that talk about huge differences, right? And the question is which of those kinds of discourses is is dominant or which is invoked in a particular situation. So certainly I also heard, you know, a lot of discourse about, yeah, having, you know, similar mode of life, but also just having had to kind of, you know, because because of being neighbors and sharing this infrastructure of having to get along and indeed of sort of social life not being particularly I don't know, particularly nationalistic, let's say. And, you know, people quite, quite happily sort of switching language or that, that sort of thing. And, and I think then, you know, you also mentioned about the kind of economic resources, economic basis of life. I think that, that the shift in, in sort of economic mode of life or the, the, let's say the, 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 the shifts that have come about as a result of the fact that Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan took very different economic courses in the post-Soviet period are are quite significant too. So certainly even back as far as 2004, I remember on the in the Kyrgyz villages, there was this kind of sense that, oh, you know, those Tajiks, they live a lot better than us. Bailarkup was the way it was often put. You know, there are lots of rich people. And, you know, this was often read in terms of people pointing out, you know, two-story houses and so on and so forth. Now, this, the, the picture, I think, is also more complicated than that, because what you have on the Tajik side of the border, certainly in, in somewhere like Charku or Sur, is incredible population density. I mean, really quite for Central Asia, quite extreme population density, certainly for a, you know, for a, for a rural, you know, for, for, for a rural community. And that is, you know, there, there are historical reasons for that to do with kind of demographics, but it's also to do with the geographical location of Charku and, and the, the lack of spare land available. And so I think this has also, one of the consequences of that is that that, I think, led people to re- rely on migration migration specifically to Russia as a sort of mode of sustaining livelihoods in Tajikistan really comparatively early, right, right from the 1990s. In Kyrgyzstan, the kind of turn towards Russia as a mode of life, as a sort of mode of, you know, source of income and so forth, it, it took off in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, but it started slightly later. But that, again, I think has significant consequences. I did some research on this in 2005 and 2010 in quite a sort of systematic way, interviewing like several hundred people about their migration destinations and so forth. And it was really striking that the destinations on the two sides of the border were completely different. There were these completely different networks in operation in terms of where people were were migrating to. But one, again, I think one of the sort of impacts of that 
is that it has introduced new levels of economic stratification in villages, right? There's just a lot more wealth inequality. But it has also meant that those kind of, again, those sort of links that might habitually have existed um, between uh, young men in particular, Kyrgyz and Tajik young men, uh, are attenuated by the fact that sort of Russia is now the main point of orientation for, you know, young male school leavers. There's a sort of expectation that, you know, you go and you go and work in Russia for, for several years and often for, for many, many years. And I think that has also, you know, in terms of kind of mode of mode of life had a significant impact. And then perhaps it's worth mentioning, you know, the 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 alleged role of the narcotics trade in contributing to a certain sort of well, again, to, to economic stratification, but also potentially to a certain kind of lawlessness. That was, and I say this with a certain degree of like couching this and hesitancy because this was, this was something that I never, you know, tried to investigate in, in any empirical way. I'm going here on the sort of, you know, the rumors and the discourse, which was, ah, you know, there are a lot of rich people there in Tajikistan across the border because there are all of these um, families who are involved in 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 the narcotics trade, right? I'm not claiming that that assertion is true, but even even the fact that that narrative existed was itself, I think, socially significant. No, this is an interesting point you raised too, because uh, you know the the rumor the rumors are what you know at least what people believe about this region is. Interesting to me too. The narcotics trade, for instance, to go back to 1999, when when I, I first approached people again in this in this very area, Aksai, Varuk, those places, and said, "What do you know about Juma Namangani?" Everyone identified him as the major narcotics trafficker between Afghanistan and mm-hmm. Southern Turkestan, not as the head of a militant group, but as the major mm-hmm. narcotics trafficker. Right. So this is how they knew who he was or at least what they believed who he was. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about this migration thing, because I think, you know, this is one of the, I think one of the more interesting aspects that gets overlooked about about what causes the conflict in this area. When I was there in 2018, I asked, I was in Aksai, and I asked some uh, Kyrgyz guy what, what what the problems were, and he was by him, it was just me and him, so no one else could hear what he was saying. And he told me that the problem was that a lot of Kyrgyz in, from the area were leaving the area um, yeah. to as labor migrants and selling their property to people in Tajikistan. And this was this was causing a lot of conflict. There was clearly no formal contract for this kind of thing, right? It was a, a simple cash deal. The Tajik new Tajik owners of this land, of course, were sectioning off what they had just bought. And that that raised a lot it caused a lot of problems among the Kyrgyz population. And and later, uh, it was in in fact I have it right here on my screen. In January 2020 uh, there was a, a dep- dep- Kyrgyz deputy prime minister, Janish Razakov, uh, said that Kyrgyz who sell their homes or land along the border to Tajik citizens are traitors. So mm-hmm. clearly this was going on. I mean, mm-hmm. would you say that that's these kind of informal land deals, which admittedly involved payment, um, how much would that contribute to upsetting the uh, uh, the balance, the harmony such as it was that existed in this area? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I I think a really important question is how much of that, you know, how many of those exchanges really, really occurred? And, and how much, again, is the sort of the rumor or the fear or the speculation of that happening? So I think it's certainly 
you know, I think there's certainly sort of evidence and, 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 and I know of instances where there have been, yeah, sort of informally selling property or uh, perhaps less kind of homes, but but maybe more, you know, sort of apricot orchards or, you know, sort of loaning of land, loaning of, of rice fields, for instance, for those who have them along the Isfara River, which are very um, profitable. And that that is so I think there is, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that that probably goes on. But I think that there is also in this sort of hyper sensitized context where there is a lot of na- nationalist rhetoric surrounding so-called creeping migration, right? There is also a lot of, let's say, kind of discursive amplification of that, which is used to to threaten and to threaten people with not with not moving. And that is something that I kind of encountered in, in Aksai, where people, yeah, who had, you know, built up lives and in some cases obtained Russian citizenship um, in Russia, but who still, you know, owned land or were soon, you know, who were, who were sort of expecting to inherit land, let's say, as a, as a youngest son and to look after, you know, the, the, the atajer, the, the, the homeland and the, and the home property. I think there's a lot of, there has been a lot of pressure on those people to to return you know to quote defend the border and that's something i think that also politicians have 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 appealed to the local population to to remind them that you know you are the you know the the zashitniki granitsi you're the the defenders of the border and of course you know in the in the last escalation that creates then extraordinary kind of existential i think pressures on those individuals and families who you know they they're desperate to return to their homes and to their villages and so forth and yet there is this absolute exhaustion with these repeated conflicts and i think a kind of you know increasing levels of of fear that these conflicts won't be resolved and that this kind of you know the 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 threat the threat to one's livelihood the threat to one's existence the threat to one's property is is always there and i think you know that one of my kind of concerns is whether they're one of the consequences of the latest escalation will be a sort of de facto a de facto exodus from 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 border villages um, particularly on the kyrgyzstan side because of concerns that you know demographically in any, you know, sort of escalation of conflict between Kyrgyz and Tajiks in the area, Tajiks are numerically dominant. And again, that was a very, very significant discourse that I encountered, um, that quite apart from the demographics of the, the two nation states, the perception on the Kyrgyzstan side of the border was that, you know, the population of the Tajiks in Varoch and, and Charku was, you know, um, equivalent to the, the entire population of 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 um of back in rayon right that was a sort of comparison that people would would often make so i think the sort of the the demographics of the situation are also significant both in themselves but in terms of the threat perception you know thank you very much and you know that i've just seen actually uh you know reports where they're talking to people who were evacuated from the border area and they, and they made just as you said they, they were questioning whether it was even worth it to go back and build their house again 
You know, in some cases, there's people have had their houses destroyed in last year's fighting and just had their house destroyed again. Uh, you know, so there, there is a lot of questions about what, whether it's, uh, whether it's worth it, um, to even try to inhabit that area again. Um, we are at about the halfway point. So it's, it's mm-hmm. my time to say, uh, that this is the Medjulis podcast, a weekly program from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, and this program, we're looking at life along the border, uh, the Kyrgyz-Tajik border, and what it's like for the people who are living there. And I'm very fortunate today to be joined by Madeline Rees, a professor of social anthropology at Oxford University and author of the book Border Works, Spatial Lives of the State in Rural Central Asia, which is based upon observations she made when she lived in the area along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border where so much of the fighting has taken place. Uh, I thank you for being here again, Madeline. And, and you know, let's let's talk a little bit about the changes in life, right? We were there in, uh, I won't say the good old days, but anyway, you know, uh, we were talking before the show started that, that there was a time when there were no border posts there and there was no military. Even when the IMU was up in the mountains, I remember only once passing one of those train wagons on wheels uh, where they had a guy with a table outside that was checking to see who was passing through, but there really was no military presence in the area at all. The focus of these governments, and, and this is, it's different from, from Tajik side and from the Kyrgyz side, but their, their main focus, it seems to me, lately has been, uh, the militarization of the border. Now this works in different ways, of course. The, the Kyrgyz side, I, I get the sense, certainly when I was there in 2015, that Kyrgyzstan really wants to build up their presence in this area. Whereas yeah. the Tajik government's focus is more on security along the border and building up their military force. The Kyrgyz government would prefer that many more people live there for the reasons you said they're outnumbered, right? Um, but, but I'm curious about your thoughts about the creeping where it was creeping. It, it's certainly increasing in, in speed now, but, but the introduction suddenly of the security factor into the region, which is really based upon the mutual threat of the two countries. There is no militant threat in the area right now. Uh, there is no Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. So there's this militarization, pro- militarization process going on that involves preparing to battle the other, your neighboring country. Uh, how much does that affect, uh, the, you know, the, the people of the area, but also their attitudes toward one another? You, you know, you said the, the, they built different roads now, right? So they're not interacting like they used to. The rhetoric coming from their capitals is is that this is they don't come out and say this is an enemy state because they they keep trying to say there's reconciliation, but there's the undertone of that that this is not you get the the sense that they're not portraying this as a friendly nation anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that do to the relationship along the border? Yeah, I think it's it's um it I mean I think the short answer is I think it's very detrimental to relations, right? And and there's a sort of an irony there, I think that that what we see, and, and this has been happening, this isn't something kind of recent, this has been, you know, in, in my book, I kind of track this progressive sort of militarization of the region or the, or the progressive sort of uh, use of an argument that because there are these kind of local conflicts, right, involving stone throwing and disputes over water and so on and 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 and, and land, that because of that, we need a sort of state presence, right? Or we need a military presence. We need a border guard presence to kind of control the border, to regulate these disputes. What I observed quite, you know, regularly was that one of the kind of consequences of this was that disputes that had indeed previously existed, right? This is a region where there have 
historically been disputes. You know, you, you, if you go to the, the 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 Soviet archive from the 1970s and the late 80s, you know, there are particular sort of moments of escalation. People refer to them as the War of the Spades, right? Um, and which is kind of indicative in terms of that was the weapon of, you know, that was the weapon available. So, so it's not to say that there weren't disputes, but I think one of the consequences of this sort of increasing presence of a, of a security threat is that whenever there were these local disputes that would previously have been resolved by typically elders from the neighboring communities getting together, sitting down over plov um, and so forth and, and, and figuring out, okay, how are we going to, for instance, make sure that we can regulate water use from the Isfara River in such a way that everybody is able to irrigate their garden plots? For instance, you know, there was there was a lot of, you know, this kind of very informal diplomacy that was going on. And what happens as soon as you sort of introduce a kind of, you know, not just a state presence, but a state presence in the form of a guy with a Kalashnikov is that there would be increasing sort of resort to go and call upon the authority of that border guard to come and resolve those local disputes. Right. So it took issues that had previously been resolved kind of very locally and informally and based on sort of sort of relations of respect and authority within the local communities um, in ways that were linked to age and gender and so forth. They they've now sort of been delegated and delegated very often to um, people who are not from the region, who don't know these specificities, who don't let's say speak uzbek or you know are able to speak uzbek to the to the to the to the men from varokh across the border who who don't have that kind of sensibility of we've always lived here we've got to get along and so forth so that's one i think consequence that you know i i, I remember during field work this was in 2010 this sort of Hearing this, this kind of, you know, sort of on their radio, right? The kind of, um, you know, the, the, the word of mouth kind of going, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a conflict that's kind of, you know, started. And immediately the response was, oh, we have to ring the head of the local border unit so that he can come and kind of put, a, put, a, put an end to this you know, very, very local dispute between neighbors. So this kind of, I think, one of the consequences of this militarization is that, and I'm not here talking about, you know, the most recent events, I'm talking about, you know, a progressive process over the last 10, 15 years, is that there is this recourse to the use of the threat of military force to resolve local disputes. So that's one, I think, really significant consequence. A second significant consequence is that what's been happening is the militarization of this region without any kind of significant progress on the thing that really matters to the local population, which is getting the border delimited, juridically agreed in certain areas, demarcated, but certainly sort of at a juridical level, getting absolute clarity on the border, because only when you have that, then does that risk of so-called creeping migration cease right the idea that somehow if, if if you sell your property to somebody from the neighboring state then de facto the the border itself moves so that's the other thing is that it's it's militarization in a sense in the absence of the political will to really address the kind of the 
the, the, the issues of, of, of delimitation and demarcation without any aggressive movement on the on the legal side, on the technical side or the kind of political will to manifest that. And then I think a third consequence of this militarization is that it means that there, if, if the, if the face of the neighboring state that you encounter is a sort of a, a face that is potentially one that is threatening or coercive, right? It, it kind of reproduces this sense that, you know, those people are a threat to us. Right. You know, if, if you if you if you you know to be able to get to your local market, you have to kind of you know, you, you have to sort of encounter a whole bunch of border guards with 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 um, Kalashnikovs and so on. It, it's this kind of intensification of threat in within daily life that is, I think, very, very it just antagon- it can antagonize local relations. And again, I'm basing this on my my observations on multiple occasions where I observed, you know, conflicts between a young border guard of one state and an elderly woman from the neighboring state who was, you know, trying to go and get water or trying to go and get firewood from, you know, the, 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 the kind of the hills roundabout and where this was sort of there was offence taken at the way in which that interaction occurred. I know other instances where women in particular uh, and younger women in particular were warned by other members of their community not to take the local minibus, the local mashrutka, because because of this sort of presence of of border guards. So it has, I think, you know, I think that there was a disproportionate, has been a disproportionate effect impact on women's mobility in a region, as you mentioned before, where where kind of gender norms and and expectations around sort of appropriate gendered comportment and, and maintaining of social distance between men and women um, who are not related is, is quite pronounced. So there are all of these kinds of consequences, quite apart from the fact that people often perceive and, 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 and you know, I think there are legitimate grounds for that perception that those border guards might be corrupt, that they might be not acting in a way that is appropriate, you know, that there's use of bad language and so on and so forth. You know, there's a lot of accusations about border guards from the neighboring state being drunk, misbehaving, harassing women and so forth. And of course, that can be very, very inflammatory, you know, in a context where there isn't necessarily a sort of strong trust towards state authorities and or a strong and certainly a strong trust towards state authorities of the neighboring state okay thank you very much um, it, unfortunately we're going to run out of time here in a, in a few minutes but i want to get there's a couple more points i want to get in here that i really want to address now you know it, it has always seemed to me when these conflicts have broken out whether it was the fistfights and rock throwing or whether it's you know the the artillery duels that they're having and with helicopter gunships and and possibly drones apparently mm-hmm. That the Kyrgyz side has always seemed much more interested in resolving this problem as fast as possible. Um, whereas you get the sense that the Tajik side is is not well. Well, they would probably like to see the border the border marked and and put an end to this. They they don't seem to be in that much of a hurry. And and it occurs to me um, that you know Rahman is not extremely popular in northern Tajikistan. Uh, you know, in the when in the election, the only semi-fair election they had or close to fair election they had 
years ago. He he ran against a, a candidate from the north, and it, it was a very close election nationally. Mm-hmm. Civil war was on, but uh, you know, and then he went to the north uh, in 1997, 1998. I can't remember the exact year, but there was an assassination attempt against him. So it, it's it's pretty clear, my, and that's my experience too when I've been in Hojan and places in the north too. That he's not Imam Ali Rahman is not very popular, and people don't like him. Uh, but but then you have this other. We've mentioned Charku. Here's a village on the border, mm-hmm. which perhaps uh, the poster boy, for lack of a better term, of, of you know, anti-Rahman sentiment, right? This is a, a village, um, you know, I mentioned, I, I stayed there for a couple nights. It's a Shariat village mm-hmm. where the veil, people are very, very religious. Uh, they proudly told me, and this was 2006, um, that they 99.9% of the village always votes for the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan, which has since then been banned as an extremist group. So how much, in your opinion, is it's in, it seems this way to me, is it in the interest of the Tajik government that this border conflict continues because it gives them an excuse to keep military forces up there and to keep people who might have anti-government sentiment more concerned about the border conflict than they are about the government in Dushanbe? I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. I absolutely agree with you that, I mean, that, that you know, that's also been my experience that in a sense, I think Charku in particular, Varuk to an extent, but, 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 but the whole of the Isfara Valley, you know, historically in Tajikistan has been viewed by, by elites in Dushanbe with a certain degree of, I, I don't know what the best word, it's fear, but also perhaps a sense that, you know, this region is not Kind of adhering to the to the to the vision of sort of authoritarian secularism that that is being promoted by Rahman, right? So, so I absolutely agree that you know this is a this is also a very it's important to recognize that this the the this is a very distinctive region within the context of Tajikistan. Whether it's a question of sort of deliberately you know wanting to keep this as an area of trouble and threat as a way to sort of bring this region then under the orbit orbit of the central Tajik authorities. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think that would be a really interesting question to pose to somebody who is more of a Tajikistan expert than me. But I, what I would say is that the perception in Tajikistan that, and this was something that I, you know, I encountered on multiple occasions talking to people on the Tajik side of the border in the mid 2000s, the perception on the Tajikistan side of the border was, oh, if only our government responded to demands, local demands and local grievances in a way that the Kyrgyz authorities respond to local demands and local grievances in Batken. If only there was this level of sort of responsiveness and kind of I don't know, even sort of political interest, let alone kind of, you know, investment in, 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 in border infrastructure, then, you know, we would live so much better. That was, that was something that I often encountered on the Tajik side was a feeling that there was a comparative lack of political voice that wasn't just to do with the different political systems in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, but that was to do with the fact that the Kyrgyzstani authorities devoted a lot of attention to, you know, the Chegaramasilesi, the border issue, that it sort of had a salience in public discourse. And there was a feeling that I encountered at that time 
on the Tajik side of the border of being of being kind of largely ignored by the Dushanbe authorities. So I guess a short kind of comment in response to yours is to say I'm not sure whether it was a sort of, you know, deliberately kind of keeping this as a, as a region that, you know, needs to be kept under control or whether it was just sort of ignoring it, really, and and a lack of kind of political will or political capacity to address people's, you know, really significant grievances and concerns, you know, to do with, for instance, shortages of land, shortages of water, lack of job opportunities, you know, and it's worth mentioning that, for instance, one of the main industries locally uh, on, on the Tajik side of the border in in um, Shorab, which had been a huge sort of mining town, had been you know, had gone down to sort of one mine working, you know, so there's, there's also sort of real issues around opportunities for, for work in a context where land is extremely, uh, in extremely short supply. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, we got to get down to the, the very last question. Mm-hmm. You know, again, getting back to where we started from the way this border is drawn. Uh, and you made the point in your book, too, for instance, we talked about the road, but we, we haven't talked about the water canals, right, that were, that were mm-hmm. dug by during Soviet times that were, of course, internal, right? This is one country in the Soviet days. Now they go back and forth through, you know, into Tajikistan, back into Kyrgyzstan and stuff. Is it really possible to divide the border? Or, or are they going to have to come up with something more, in your opinion? Are they going to have to come up with something more creative? Because I can't, you know, you can't, when people talk about dividing the border, you think of a line or a wall or a fence, and I, you know, having been through that area, I don't see how it's possible to do that. There are always going to be areas where people aren't going to be sure which whose country this belongs to, or that they have to cooperate uh, in the case of the roads or water canals, uh, because it serves both their purposes that these arteries are kept open. Uh, so, how, how do you? Is it is it in your opinion? Is it possible to actually divide the border or? Is do we have to come to some kind of mutual understanding about uh, sharing the resources on the border is a better option? So, so I I think it's important to kind of not conflate two things. I think it's really important to juridically delimit the border, right, and to have that sort of intergovernmental agreement about where the juridical line of the border is, because until that point exists, there are constantly going to be the kinds of claims and counterclaims that we've seen. You know, if you look at the the, the, the statements of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan over the last week, kind of claim and counterclaim about territory and about, you know, whether, whether quote, real border lies. But I think that is a very separate question from what does the form and the shape of that border look like as a material entity on the ground. And there are a multitude of kind of global examples where a border doesn't have to mean, the existence of an international border doesn't have to mean, you know, barbed wire and 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 razor wire. You know, it's, you know, I think this is where it comes to a question of sort of political will and political political diplomacy, let's say, and, and, and you mentioned the word creative, you know, creative solutions and thinking, let's say, from other global examples of places where states have resolved complex transboundary issues. And I'll just throw out one. India and Bangladesh have managed to resolve an area where there are huge numbers of enclaves, right? A significant part of an incredibly complex border, again, post-colonial borders. There are there are ways that this can be done sort of at a, at a technical level. What matters is the political will. And what matters is for people on both sides of that border to feel secure 
right, secure that they can go to the market unharmed, that they that their house won't be burned down, you know, that their kids can go to school safely. I mean, it are very, very basic existential questions. And I think part of the problem, actually, in terms of the kind of political imagination on both sides of, of, of the border, is that there is this assumption that, you know, the only way to resolve the border here is to put up, you know, is, is, is to sort of have some a wall or, a, you know, or a fence. Actually, there are ways that one can have a functioning border regime, which nonetheless allows people to peaceably go about their lives, right? Um, you know, uh, there are examples of that, you know, in the, in the European Union, but there are also, a, a, you know, a whole host of other global examples of what that might look like. And I think part of when I talk about sort of political imagination and political will is drawing upon some of those examples to say, OK, what would it look like to have a border that were juridically delimited, but where people could still easily cross back and forth what would that mean in terms of permits what would that mean in terms of how and where the, the border is is policed um what would that mean in terms of you know special designations for particular communities what would that mean in terms of infrastructure and so on and so forth you know these are these are questions that if there's the political will i think can be resolved great let's leave it on this this potentially optimistic note then I thank you to Madeline Reeves, who's a professor of social anthropology at Oxford University and the author of the book Border Work, Spatial Lives of the State in Rural Central Asia, which is about life along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border. I uh, appreciate you being here today, Madeline. I also want to give a big thank you to my producer in Washington, D.C., Nathan Shoemaker. Uh, I'm, of course, Bruce Panier, the host of the Medjolis Podcast, and a reminder that you can subscribe to the Medjolis Podcast or the weekly uh, Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.